Genesis chapter 46, picking up in verse one. So Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will also surely bring you up again and Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. If you'll skip ahead with me to verse 29, Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel and as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. I'm gonna divide this chapter this morning into three sections. So I wanna go ahead and give those to you ahead of time. Number one, recognition, verses one through seven, recognition. Uh, number two, registration, registration, verses eight through 27. And finally, number three, reunion, verses 28 through 34. So recognition, registration, and reunion. If you're taking notes, that's kind of how we'll outline the chapter this morning. Let me begin by asking a question. Are you excited to be reunited? Are you looking forward to first Sunday back? I can't tell you how much I long for and I'm excited for that time when we fill this auditorium again with joy and laughter and, and hugs and song and worship and prayer and fellowship and we're all here in this same place. I am so looking forward to gathering together once again as a church family. And honestly, one of the sweet serendipities of this season is our growing appetite for fellowship. I hear it in everyone's voice, in everyone's words as we talk, as we, as we converse. Ah, I long to see you. Oh, I can't wait to be together. Boy, it's, it's good just to talk. And no matter the size of the fellowship, our desire to be back in fellowship is just great. I was out yesterday driving around and drove across the bridge and went down toward Campbell Lake. Traffic was backed up from the bridge to Campbell Lake. People were everywhere. You give Americans an inch of freedom and they will take off. And that happened yesterday. I mean, people were out all over the place here in the Northwest with the beauty of the, of the sun and the warmth of the day and the clear blue skies. Man, people were all over the place. People want to be together. We love and long to be together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When I was a kid growing up in church, that was the verse pastors would use to make you feel guilty for missing church. Let's not forsake the assembly. Well, now we're in the point where no one wants to. All we want is to be together, and we've, we've recognized the value of fellowship and intimate closeness face-to-face, -face, shoulder to shoulder, arm-in-arm, arm, living for Jesus. And I've had some say, Rick, have, 
we've forsaken the assembly in this season. Forsaken is the word utterly abandoned. Have we utterly abandoned the assembly? And I would say to you, no. I don't believe we have. And if you just heard me say that, you know you haven't because you are part of the assembly this morning, the called out, the ecclesia, the church. We're gathered. And churches are gathering all over the world in unique ways and different methods. You know, we're divided by a camera, but I have fellowship with three or four or five of my brothers and one sister here this morning, those who are gathered here together to to make this happen. Listen, if you're excited to be reunited, abandonment is not the issue because we never stopped assembling in spirit and in truth. And I've said this a few times over the last three weeks. Man, be at peace. We are assembling in spirit and in truth. And that is more significant and more intimate than any flesh-to-flesh fellowship could ever be. And I'm not denying the value or the importance or the need for us to be together. As I said, I long for this. Spirit and truth, however, is the issue. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in your midst. We are here, Lord Jesus, in your name. And he is here, he says. I'm there. Isn't it marvelous that he went home to be with the Father so that in all of our assemblies he could be there with every gathering, every small little group, every household, Jesus is there. Listen to these words. Jesus said in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus said, listen, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The dynamic of fellowship with Jesus Christ, and of course is with one another, is, as I said, what we were made for. And so people say, well, That being the case, and if we were made for such fellowship, why don't we defy all of these things and gather right now? Why aren't we all together in the church building today defying the order of government? They cannot keep us apart. And I would agree with you. There is no law of man that can deny brothers and sisters in Christ from following our Lord and fulfilling the call, even the call to assemble. But please hear me. This morning, setting aside all politics. This morning, setting aside all concerns, economic or otherwise. Just this morning, please listen. I believe something's got to happen first. Something's got to happen first. Remember the question of Joseph's brothers, Genesis 42, 28. What is this that God has done to us? What is this God has done to us? It's not for us a question of accusation. What is it God's done to us? And it's not a question of exasperation. What is it God has done to us? 
It's a question of divine resignation, which is what we were talking about on Wednesday night. What is it God has done to us? See, he has the right to do whatever he wants to us and through us and in us and for us. He has the right. Divine resignation says, Lord, I don't understand it, but I will accept it. And I'm asking you, what are you doing in it? What has God done for us? See, one way or another, there's coming a day when this season will end. There's coming a day when the darkness of pestilence and famine and murder hornets will pass. There's coming a moment, a moment in time, infinitely more grand than our first Sunday back here. Don't forget that moment. But even for all of that, even for the moment that we are caught up to be with the Lord, something's got to happen first. How do you know that, Rick? Because we would be with him otherwise. If there wasn't something yet on God's agenda, we'd be done. We'd be out of here. We'd be home. And not home here, home there. Something's got to happen first. We've said sometimes, God's up to something. Lord, what are you doing? So this last week, our shepherds did meet, and we prayed. We felt that the requirement of our meeting superseded any other thing, and so we gathered together to lift up holy hands in prayer, as the Bible tells us to do, to seek the Lord and his counsel, to ask for wisdom, to seek understanding as to what we as a fellowship are supposed to do regarding reopening and regathering. And without going into all of our conversation, because it was long, it was a few hours, I can tell you right now that our plan is, or at least we believe the Lord's plan, is the Bridge Fellowship is going to, or needs to soon begin, home meetings. Some of you are already doing it. We know who you are. <laughs> but to begin to gather together in each other's homes, 8, 10, 12, 15 people, and we're gonna begin to organize that. In fact, jot this down. If you are at a place right now where you are comfortable opening the doors of your home to brothers and sisters in Christ on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday night, to share a larger fellowship than just your family, to gather together, three, four, five, 10, 11, 12, in your home to do that, then I encourage you to email Jake, jbarksdale, at tbcfwa.org, tbcfwa.org, J Barksdale, or call him, note this, I'm putting it out there, he's, he's not gonna appreciate this at all, his cell phone, 360-708-3169, call him. Go ahead, right now, I want, him, I want to see his phone light up. 360-708-3169, why? Because what we wanna do is get a number of homes and addresses of people who are saying, our home is open, come fellowship. And we will get that out to you via email and on our website or however we need to. We'll probably even announce it from here. Here are the homes that, where the doors are open and you can begin to fellowship together. Are you lighting up? Yeah. Yes, someone's calling already. Who's, who's calling you? This is oh, great, it's Eva up top. That's, that's funny. Anyway, 
contact Jake because he's gonna be kind of the clearinghouse for just creating a list of people who are saying, yeah, we would love to have brothers and sisters gather here on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday evening, and begin to be in fellowship. Oh, Rick, that's not the whole large church. Why don't we kick open the doors right now? And by the way, let me say this really clearly. I'm not saying that that's to begin Wednesday night or Sunday morning. Okay, we're not setting a date that this is the start date for these home fellowships to begin. We're asking you to contact Jake and give him the info so we can get that information out. We are praying about the day where we say, this is the day. And it could be sooner as opposed to later. There's a reason I'm telling you that too. But let me go on. Some are saying, why are we waiting right now? Why not kick open the doors? Why not just meet? What is the problem, Rick? Why do you keep kowtowing to the government? I love you guys. I'm not kowtow. I don't even know what a kowtow is. I'm not doing that. I met with our shepherds to pray it through and, and together, and it was a very interesting conversation and time of prayer, and we prayed a lot. And what we together believe the Lord wants right now, please hear me, is pause. A pause. Just, just a moment longer. I don't know if that's another week. I don't know if it's two. All I can tell you this morning is we believe the Lord wants us, this fellowship, to pause a moment longer, to wait for his divine sanction, his release. Not anybody else's. If his release comes before the government, good. If his release comes after the government, okay. It's his release that we're seeking here. I'm not talking about in your businesses, the economics of this. I'm not talking about whether you should open the doors of your, of your small business somewhere. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about this church fellowship. And by the way, I'm not talking about any other church fellowship because I'm not gonna sit in judgment of a church that's not opening its doors or of a church that is right away. They gotta ask the Lord. That's why he set up independent churches throughout the world. They have to pursue the Lord. We're pursuing right now for this fellowship. And we believe that he's saying, I want you to pause just a little longer. Well, what's the value in that? Isaiah 40, verse 31, those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And we may be entering a season very quickly here where we need to run and walk, mount up even with wings and not grow weary. It may be in the final stretch here where much is gonna be asked and required of us. Therefore, right now, the Lord's saying, pause and rest, wait on me. Let me do in your hearts, in your spirits, what needs to be done because I know what's coming and you don't. Those who wait on the Lord. Man, that, that familiar verse is so easy to follow when everything's going well. It's really easy to say, oh yeah, wait on the Lord and you will renew your strength and mount up with wings like eagles. I love that verse. Yeah, when you're not waiting. It's when we're waiting we don't wanna hear that. It's, it's when we don't know what the next step is and we're in this pause of uncertainty, oh, what do we do? That someone reads Isaiah 40, verse 31, and we go, Psh, I knew he was gonna bring that one up. Brothers and sisters, we have two choices right now in this season. We can focus on the waiting period and be really frustrated, or, or 
we can focus on the mounting up, the day of our flight. When we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. That is what I'm looking for. But if we look at the waiting, we'll be stressed. If we look at the flying, we will be joyful even in the wait because we know what's coming. We're assured of what is on the way. So I am excited to be reunited, both here and there. But waiting in faith is learning to live flight ready. It's learning to trust him in all circumstances so that when the time comes that he says, all right, go, or he says, all right, come up here, we'll be ready. Waiting in faith is about the will of God. So Genesis 46, is that what we're studying this morning? Genesis 46 is so interesting to me. Let me ask you, what would you do if you found out that one of your kids who you thought had been killed, and for 22 years you carried that sorrow, you suddenly found out they were alive and you know where they are. What would you do? I'd tell you what I would do. I'd be in the car so fast, I don't even think Cheryl could keep up with me. I'd be blazing down the driveway to get to where they are. I'd be longing to see them, to be with them to fall on their neck in tears and hug and hold them. 22 years, Jacob has thought Joseph was dead and suddenly discovers he's alive. What would you do? Wouldn't you think, after believing this for so long, that news of Joseph being alive would cause Jacob to spring right up out of his wheelchair and make a beeline, skipping and dancing all the way down to Egypt. He's alive, he's alive. He'd be doing the happy dance. So what's interesting is that Jacob's journey begins with a pause. A pause that reveals to us his frame of mind between what he does and what God says, we can know exactly what Jacob was thinking. Part one in our study, recognition, recognition. Verse one, Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Beersheba. Beersheba is in the south, the Negev, the south country of the land. It's the next to last settlement before you come into Egypt. The last settlement before you come into Egypt is Kadesh Barnea, or was Kadesh Barnea. Once you hit Kadesh, you step on out of that and you are in the territory of Egypt. Beersheba could have had one of those blue info signposts that says no rest stop for the next 50 miles because from Beersheba down to Kadesh was 50 miles and then you're on into Egypt. Once Jacob went south of Beersheba, he would technically be leaving out of the land of promise. Understand that Jacob has only left the promised land one other time in his life. And he spent most of that time trying to get back, wanting to get back, longing to get back, but stuck where he was. And now he's in the land where he has dwelt the rest of his life. He's been there. 
And he comes to Beersheba, and rather than blazing right on by, he stops. Why there? Understand that Beersheba was more than a rest stop. It didn't pull into a gas station, pick up some in and out for the rest of the journey. Beersheba is where Abraham's well was. Abraham's well. Beer means well. Sheva means seven. It was Abraham's well of the seven. And Genesis 21, 33 tells us Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, worshiped the everlasting God, that is El Olam. El Olam, that's one of my favorite names for God, everlasting God. And there, Abraham at Beersheba, at the well of the seven, he called upon the name of the everlasting God. Here at Beersheba, God appeared twice to Isaac. So Abraham called on the name of the Lord there, dug a well there, planted a tree there in honor of the Lord. Isaac was met by the Lord, heard from the Lord, was appeared to by the Lord two times, Genesis chapter 26 tells us, at Beersheba. Isaac then lived at Beersheba. By the way, Beersheba, if you're hearing me say Beersheba, is it Beersheba, is it Beersheba? Well, it's the V sound in the Hebrew, but it's really two words. There's well of the seven, Beersheba, and then there is another word, which is Beersheba, which you would transliterate S-H-I-B-A, Beersheba, which is well of the oath. Because both Abraham and Isaac made oaths at that well, made covenants with two different Philistine kings, both of them called Abimelech. In Genesis 21, Abraham did, and in Genesis 26, Isaac did. So the well is the well of the seven, but it's also the well of the oath, Beersheba, Beersheba. And Isaac and Abraham both made covenants there. Jacob, think about this. Jacob was born at Beersheba. So he's going back to his birthplace. He had fled from Beersheba where he had grown up, he and his brother Esau, in the household of his father, Isaac, mother Rebekah. He had grown up there and he fled from there up to the north and back and hooking around to Haran, to the home of, that's another story. But he headed out when he first, the first and only other time he left the land, he left from Beersheba. As far as we know, at least according to the biblical record, this is the first time he's been back in Beersheba since the day he fled there as a young man. It's a significant stop for Jacob. But for all of these significant events in and around Beersheba, the biblical text tells us that he stopped there for one reason and one reason alone, and it was, look at verse one, to offer sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. He stopped to worship. And by the way, the phrasing that Moses uses in writing this, to offer sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac, that whole phrase tells us this moment is way bigger than Jacob. The God of his father Isaac immediately recalls the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It recalls to us the Abrahamic covenant and the significance of that covenant. And I know this, and I know it's on Jacob's mind because the ripple effect of this journey south to Egypt will impact every generation of Jews to the present day. Leaving the land had huge implications 
where the Abrahamic covenant was concerned. You may recall, and Jacob probably knew that his grandfather Abraham had heard from God, Genesis 15, 13, God said, know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. So that prophecy was hanging out there from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And you've gotta know that Jacob's got this on his mind. I don't be the, wanna be the one who causes all my people to go into 400 years of slavery. I don't want that on me. If I go out of this land right now, Am I the one who's gonna bring about this prophetic word? How'd you like that on your conscience? Yeah, it was my fault, 400 years of slavery fell upon my people. So as wonderful as seeing Joseph would be, the journey south is the key we now know that locks in 430 years of Jewish oppression, which again is an event, a time still remembered today by the people of Israel, by the Jewish people. It's still felt. It's still acknowledged. Have you ever just stopped to consider how your personal actions might ripple, impact, or affect others, even people you don't even know? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, says something very interesting, and I believe I quoted it this past week, but I'll quote it again. For the love of Christ controls us. The word is not, as the NIV says, compels us. It's control. The love of Christ controls us. Then he continues to explain how, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We gotta pause and think about more than ourselves, more than me. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, it's that I may no longer live for myself. Christ's love controls us to do what we might not otherwise do, and Christ's love controls us from doing what we might otherwise do in the flesh. It's his love that sometimes causes us to stop at Beersheba, to pause in our tracks. Jacob knows the Abrahamic covenant called on him and his people to live in the land. That's part of the covenant. Live in the land, I'll bless you here. I'm gonna make you a great nation. And so he's thinking that's supposed to happen here, but my son Joseph is down there And right now, the entire entourage of Jacob is going to Egypt because of the famine is so severe, heading down to dwell there. So slavery, the prophecy of slavery is an issue, but also the violation of the covenant is at issue. To leave the land would be to violate the covenant. Jacob knows this. Abraham violated it when he went down to Egypt during famine without permission and he came back with Hagar and a massive family mess that itself continues to this day. Isaac would have gone down to Egypt. Again, in a time of famine, Isaac was on his way but God intervened and stopped him dead in his tracks. 
Genesis 26, verse two, the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. I'll be with you, I'll bless you, for to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. So what I'm saying is this. While Jacob couldn't wait to see Joseph, he could wait on the Lord. He had to wait for the Lord. He pauses at Beersheba to confirm his departure with the Lord. So let me ask you, what if this whole season that we're in is a pause before our departure? And we implicated this a few weeks ago, something that my brother Jake said, and it kind of spun me around in the moment. What if this is the pause before the departure? And are we ready? And are we prepared? And what if this is the pause before the difficult season of famine before our departure? Well, then, are we ready for that? The pause is important. Question is, will we, and I'm talking spiritually, and I'm talking as a church fellowship, will we patiently sacrifice to and honor the name of our God? Jacob's pause anticipates a response. He assumes God is going to speak to him, and of course, the Lord does, and this is the sixth and final revelation of God to Israel. Notice how personal it is, verse two. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. He said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Interesting, God spoke to Israel, and he said, Jacob, the names are used interchangeably, but when we're told that God spoke to Israel, the implications are bigger than just the one man. In a way of saying God is speaking to all Israel, but he's also speaking directly to Jacob. He says, Jacob, Jacob. This is a personal appeal to a son to a natural man in his uncertainty. Jacob often is the representation of Jacob in his flesh or Jacob the natural man. And the natural man is not a bad thing, please understand. The natural man is just who we are in the flesh. Acting in the natural without the leading of the spirit, that's a problem. But the natural man is what it is. It's that we want to become spiritual people, but right now the Lord is speaking to the natural man because the natural man needs to hear from the Lord. Right? <laughs> I need in my natural self to hear from the Spirit of God, which is what makes me, draws me into being a more spiritual man. So the natural man is stopped at Beersheba. He's offering sacrifices. Should I? Well, <laughs> let's put it this way. In, in the words of that great theological group, the clash, should I stay or should I go? That's the question. Should I stay? Or should I go? And God speaks now directly to Jacob, but he adds a new detail here. A new detail. As he says to Jacob in verse three, Jacob, Jacob, he said, here I am. He says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. My friends, God immediately answers Jacob's concern. Go down. He tells him, go on down. You can do this. 
This is the only time, by the way, where God tells Jacob and his people to leave the land and go to Egypt. It's the only time he says depart from the land, at least up to this date. So go on down. It's good. You're good to go. God answers it, but then he adds this new detail to the original promise that he had made to Jacob at Bethel. Do you remember that promise? Let me read it to you real quickly. Genesis chapter 28, verse 13 says, Behold, the Lord stood above it, that is above the, the, the stairway in Jacob's dream, and he says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I'm gonna make you great, Jacob, it's a furtherance of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm gonna make you a great nation of people. I'm gonna bless the world through this great nation. But the new detail is now where God planned to make Jacob great. You see, Israel was born in Canaan, but he was brought up in Egypt. Israel was born in Canaan, brought up in Egypt. Again, this is the only time the family of Israel leaves the promised land to date by divine decree, by divine order. Why does God do this? Why does God now send his people into the very land that he told Abraham and Isaac not to go to? The very land that has been problematic for Israel and would be down through the centuries because in Egypt, the Jews multiplied without intermarriage. See, in Canaan's land, the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Megabites, they all said, hey, let's, let's intermarry. Let's, let's kind of breed among each other, your people with our people, and we'll just be one big melting pot. And the Lord didn't want that. He wanted his people to be a holy people. He sends them down to Egypt where there would be no intermarriage. The Egyptians wouldn't have it, <laughs> which is marvelous. It's not dependent on the Jewish people. It's dependent on the people of Egypt who felt like the Jews were abhorrent. They're not gonna intermarry with them. Great place to go have a people grow. So they went down there and they would multiply in Egypt. Note this, after the Lord called Abram at the age of 75, it was 25 years until his family could boast one son. One son of the covenant line, one covenant son, Isaac. And then 60 years after that, to add the second covenant son, Jacob. And then it took Jacob another 50 to 60 years to add 12 covenant sons, who now with their sons have reached to the total number, as you'll see in just a second, of 70 people. 70 people. It took 215 years to go from one son to 70. But in Egypt, over 430 years, Israel would grow from 70 to 600,000 men. And that doesn't include women and children. So what we're really talking about is from 70 to two, possibly three million people in Egypt. They would multiply. Second thing to note is that in Egypt, the Jewish identity was cemented for generations to come. They were made a people through the diaspora of the, of the current age, an identity unique to 
any people group in the history of the world, there's none more ancient. There's none that has existed longer, and it began in Egypt. What I'm getting at is this for us. You Bible students know Egypt is a picture of the world, always is in Scripture. That'll become very significant as we get into Exodus, Lord willing. Egypt is a picture of the world. The world is where our faith, our unity, our sanctification, divine development, holy distinction, all of these things are bred in the world. We could say it this way. We are born again, but we're bred in this world. Born again by the Spirit of God, but brought up in this world. This world is where God is working on us right now. Genesis chapter 12, verse one, I'm sorry, Romans 12, one, the apostle Paul said, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's an interesting phrase, by the way, your spiritual service of worship. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You are in the world, not of the world. We are brought up in Egypt because in Egypt, that's where God's work is getting done. We're not here to be like the world. We're not here to commingle with the world, as it were. We're here to be made holy by the Spirit of God in this place, because in this place, the work can get done. And that's by God's divine design. Philippians chapter two, verse 13 says, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or 1 John two fifteen, John says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But we're in the world. Yes, we are. In the world, loving the Father. In the world, obeying the Father. In the world, being formed and fashioned and sanctified by the Father. And so the children of Israel were born in Canaan, but they were bred, they were brought up in Egypt. Let me ask you this. Did the raising of the children of Israel in Egypt in any way diminish God's covenant promise? No way. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable, Romans eleven twenty nine 29 tells us. And so the same is true for us. Does our being brought up in the world in any way diminish the promise that we are gonna be caught up and called home? No way. Our future is secure. Our future with Jesus, absolute. But for now, we need to pause. We need to pause to recognize, that's part one here, recognize the will of God. Verse four. Verse four, the Lord continues speaking to Jacob. He says, I will go down with you to Egypt. I also will surely bring you up again and Joseph will close your eyes. Literally, Joseph will lay his hand on your eyes. How sweet a picture is that? And by the way, God just confirmed to Jacob that in fact, Joseph is alive. Now, not only has he heard it from his sons, he's heard it direct from God himself. Does verse four sound at all familiar? Let me read it to you again. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again. 
This sounds like a previous promise God made to Jacob. Again, back in Genesis 28, verse 15, he says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised in you. This is now the second time God is saying, you're leaving the land, I'm going with you and I will bring you back. I will bring you back up to the land. Verse four of Genesis 46, I will surely bring you up. I will go down with you. I will bring you up again, he says. And the question is, you who? (laughs) I will go with you. I will bring you up. Is the statement here the absolute or the collective singular? What do you mean? Is it simply, Jacob, I'm gonna go down with you, and Jacob, I'm gonna bring you up, or is it Israel, the people, I'll go down with you, and Israel, the people, I will bring you up? And the answer is it's both. It's both. God does go down with Jacob, and by the way, God is sure to bring him back up, although Jacob will only be brought back up for his burial. We're gonna see in a study, a study, possibly even Wednesday night, if not next week, that Joseph is gonna lead a massive entourage up from Egypt to Hebron to bury his father in the cave of Machpelah, and then they'll all go back down into Goshen again, into Egypt. But, but, the Lord also, in saying, I will go with you and I will bring you back, is speaking of the sons of Israel because he goes down with them with all the families and you know, we know, the faithfulness of God is so big, he faithfully brought them back up again 430 years later. I'll be with you, I'll go down with you, I will bring you up. He's talking to the individual and he's talking to the group collective. See, that's what the rapture of the church is like. He's talking to the individual. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call you out, Rick. I'm like, yes, you are. And he's talking to the group collective, to the church in general. I'm bringing you all home. I'm with you now, and I will bring you home. But that's gonna be for the children of Israel after 430 years. What have we been dealing with now? Six weeks? There's been six long weeks of stuck in this situation on planet Earth, and Israel was in Egypt 430 years. And just trying to get some perspective. God is faithful. We are being brought up in this world, and he has also promised to bring us up to himself in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Meanwhile, don't ever forget, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And Jesus is with us right now, right where we are this morning, just as he promised. Verse five of Genesis 46. That was our longest pause right there in the, in the study. Verse five, then Jacob arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt Jacob and his descendants, all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, and his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt in wagons. And what's marvelous is, as far as the Bible says, he never once fell off the wagon. So that's, that's good to note. Now, we come to a brief accounting of the house of Jacob 
coming down to reside in Egypt. And this section we're gonna fly through, so buckle up for it. Part two, registration. Registration. What Moses gives here is a registration of those who went down to Egypt. Verse eight. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel. Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. And then he begins to break it down by mama. It being Mother's Day, so first it's Leah, her sons. The sons of Reuben are Hanok, and Palu, and Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Shimon are Yemuel, and Yamin, and Ohad, and Yakin, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, which tells us that Shimeon had at least two wives, and one of them was not of the fam. One of them was Canaanite. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohat, and Merari, which is very significant for the sons of Levi, we'll find out in the Exodus. The sons of Judah, Ur and Onan and Shelah, Perez and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez, that's actually Judah's son by Tamar, by his daughter-in-law is Perez. But what's interesting is Perez becomes the covenant line in Judah, which is why he's specifically mentioned here and his sons were Hezron and Hamul. And then the sons of Issachar, Tola and Puva and Yob and Shimron, and the sons of Zebulun, Sered and Elon, uh, who I guess is moving his business out of California, and Yalil. And then these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padam, put on Aram with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and daughters were 33. Verse 16, now we come to the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid. The sons of Gad are Ziphion and Hagi and Shuni and Esbon and Eri and Arodi and Areli. And the sons of Asher, Imna and Ishba and Ishbi and Berea and their sister Sarah. And the sons of Berea, Heber and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban came to his daughter Leah, whom she bore to Jacob, these 16 Persons. So you got 33 plus 16. Then the sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. And now to Joseph, in the land of Egypt, were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gira, Naaman, Echi, Rosh, Mupim, and Hupim, and Ard. And if you notice, Benjamin, of all the sons of Jacob, is the most prolific. He's got 10 kids of his own. And by this time, Benjamin's probably only in his mid-20s. Benny been busy. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. Some people, by the way, they, they say, ah, it's not even possible. 10 sons by the time he is 25 years old. Well, A, you don't know how young he was when he was married. B, you don't know how many of these are twins. And I'm guessing if you look at verse 21 that Mupim and Hupim were probably twins. You know? I would have named them Muppet and Huppet, but that's just me, okay? So continuing on, we get to the, the sons of Dan, are Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, and, and Guni, and, and Yezer, and Shalim. And these are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all, and all the persons belonging to Jacob, verse 26, note this, who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, 
who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the household of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. 70. So in part two of registration here, note this, there were 66 who actually traveled down. And we're talking about the sons and the grandsons because typically at that point, the daughters were not listed in the line. Sons and grandsons, there were 66. If you do the math, that actually came down to Egypt, 66. And you Bible students know where we're going. Six is the number of man. Six is the picture of the natural. And the natural man, the Jacob and fam, come down to Egypt, 66. But in Egypt, they become 70. In Egypt, they are made complete. In the Bible, 70 is the number for Israel. Seven seven is the number of completion, but 70 is the number for Israel. How do we know? Numbers 11, 16 tells us there were 70 elders. Second Chronicles 36, 21, 70 years of captivity. Daniel chapter nine, verse uh, 24, 70 Shabuim, 70 sevens are determined for Israel, and the 70th is the... um, Plan is the, the plan is complete. The 70th seven will complete the plan. That's the time of Jacob's trouble. And I'm just throwing that out there. For those of you who are tracking that, you know what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 10, verse one, Jesus sent out 70 to preach the kingdom of God to the children of Israel. So 70 is a number for Israel. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, numbered 70. It's interesting that the, uh, the Septuagint is the, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, Septuagint means the 70. It's the 70 who, who translated that from Hebrew into Greek. So 70 is a big deal, and it is a number that always speaks of or depicts Israel in the Bible. Like Israel, 66 going down, but completed there in Egypt. Like Israel, we begin here. We are brought up here. We are being completed here and now until the day that we are with the greater than Joseph. Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 28, moving on, so that's registration. Now, he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. And I gotta pause for a moment and just say something about this. It's fascinating to me. Judah goes first to Goshen, not Reuben, not the firstborn, not Simeon, Shimon, the secondborn, or Levi. It's Judah. Judah's family goes first. Judah always goes first. Judah leads the family now down into Egypt and into Goshen, his clan, his group, he and his sons and wives and, and daughters. Judah means praise. Praise always goes first. Praise goes first. Praise leads forth. Praise always does. And note this, Goshen means drawing near. Praise draws near. Praise goes first if you wanna draw near. In Exodus, uh, as they leave out of Egypt, whenever the 12 tribes of Israel set out, whenever they began to break camp and follow the Ark of the Covenant, guess which tribe went first? Always Judah, always 
Judah. Numbers chapter two, verse nine. Numbers chapter 10, verse 14. Judah goes first. Praise goes first. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's the deal. Praise goes first. Worship leads forth. In 1 Chronicles chapter 20, there's an interesting story. I don't have time to tell the whole thing right now. But Judah was invaded by the Ammonites and the Moabites and a few troglodytes. Seriously, look it up, troglodytes. There were a few of them involved in this. And King Jehoshaphat gathers all the people of Judah in Jerusalem and he prays. This is out of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 21. When he consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire and they went out before the army. And they said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. I don't know if there was ever a battle plan like it. Perhaps Jericho. But he sent the worship team first. And then the army followed to go out and meet this arrayed battlement of Ammonites and Moabites. Can you imagine being on the worship team and being asked to do that? Yeah, we're about to go into battle with Russia, but we're gonna send all of our praise teams out first. I mean, that's, that's what was happening there. And yet the Lord had told Jehoshaphat and the people, I've got this. I will protect you. Not a, a hair of your heads will be harmed. I will take them out. And so Jehoshaphat's response is worship. He sends the worship team out first. Why? Because worship routes the enemy. Worship routes doubt. Not to mention the enemy himself. And worship, praise, Judah draws us near Goshen. Worship goes first. This is why I said a few weeks ago, if you're washing the dishes or getting the stuff ready or running around the house when the live stream begins, instead of worshiping, you're missing a great opportunity. Worship routes doubt. Praise the Lord, worship the Lord, and not just when we gather via live stream. Worship goes forth. And you know what? If someone can't worship God, it is not a vocal problem. It's not an inability to sing problem. It's a heart problem. And I'm speaking directly to some who won't sing, who won't engage in worship, who are uncomfortable doing so. That's a heart problem. Your faith will not progress unless praise goes first. You see, praise goes first to draw you near. But if you're not worshiping, you're not gonna draw near. And if you don't draw near, you are not gonna progress in faith. And by the way, Judah going first, remember that the lineage of Judah is the Messiah. He comes through Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He goes first. He's the first and he's the last. He goes first and he's waiting for us at the end of the track. And our Messiah never asks us to do anything that he himself hasn't already done. He's already gone first. And so when he says to us, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why? Because that's the direction Jesus went. You can't come after him unless you take up your cross. Because the journey following Jesus goes to the cross. You can't come after him unless you deny yourself because Jesus denied himself. You can't follow him unless you do as he has done. There's more in this registration and those of you who wanna pick it apart, you can do that, but we're gonna continue on and finish this up this morning. Number three, what I've been waiting for and looking forward to 
reunion. Reunion. Verse 29, Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck. He hugged him and wept on his neck for a long time. I, I, man, I, just, I first read that this last week as I was studying it. I just sat there in it for a minute. Pause. What a beautiful, amazing moment. 22 years of sorrow now washed away in a reunion of pure joy. The moment's coming when we will weep with pure joy for a long time. And it's not, my friends, it's not the reunion of our fellowship on a Sunday or a Wednesday. It's a reunion that is far greater than that. That day, as wonderful as it may be, will not compare to the reunion with our greater than Joseph, Jesus. And I believe in that moment we will worship and we will weep for a long time. We're gonna try to fall on his neck, but there's gonna be multiplied millions of us trying to do that, all worshiping Jesus. Note this, very interesting to me. When, when Jacob thought Joseph was dead, he sank and he never really came back out of it until this moment. He sank down. Genesis 37, 35 says, all his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son, so his father wept for him. This is a very different weeping. That was a weeping of despair and hopelessness and sorrow and loss. This is a weeping of reunion, of joy, of pure wonder and happiness of heart. So soak up the moment of Joseph and Jacob. By the way, did you know, and if you look back, you can see this, that from that time forward, the time where he thought his son was dead across now 22 years, Nearly every single word that comes out of the mouth of Jacob includes words of death. Go back and just look at all the words that, jo that Jacob spoke from 37, verse 35, all the way till now, and death is in almost every single statement he makes. They are words of sorrow. They're words of despair. You're gonna bring this old gray head down to Sheol. They're words of victimization. They're words of bitterness. And now, as Joseph's sloppy, wet tears glisten on the old man's scruffy cheeks, Jacob says in verse 30, now let me die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. And suddenly, marvelously, the sorrow and bitterness of death melts away to peace. Now, now I'm ready to go. Now I can die in peace. What's funny and ironic is that after this moment, Jacob's gonna be blessed with another 17 years of life. <laughs> He'll continue to live on down in Egypt, 17 more years. He'll be able to be with Joseph, with his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, with his whole family gathered in Goshen, ensconced in this place, protected from famine. He's gonna be with the fam another 17 years because God is a God of grace. But 
The words of death shift from bitterness to peace. And I read this and I thought, you know what? What better way to die to sorrow and live in peace than in the arms of the beloved son? I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me, who gave himself up for me. Paul said, Philippians 1.21, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now listen, tune in, dial in closely. This is what I think God is doing right now. He is calling us, his people, out of fear. He is calling us out of oppression, out of anger, out of strife. Yes, even out of rebellion, because rebellion is not the heart of a follower of Jesus. He's calling us into the peace and the contentment of Christ. Can you say, the last six weeks has produced in you the peace and contentment of Christ. If not, maybe that's why we're still on pause. Listen, I said before, I will say again, I am aching to open up these doors. I am longing to be together. But I do not want us, I do not believe the Lord is calling us to meet again in defiance but to meet in peace. I don't believe the reunion is to be one of the shaking of fists. It's to be one of the lifting up of hands. And when God knows that day is ready, it's gonna happen. It could be in a week. It could be in two. It could be in a month. I don't know. As soon as I know, I'll tell you. But if we have hearts of defiance and rebellion, that is not what God is producing in us. That's the flesh. It's always the flesh. Verse 31, and we'll conclude, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds. For they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now. He's not telling them to lie. He's saying to emphasize what they did, what their uh, job occupation was. And he says, both we and our fathers say this to Pharaoh that you may live in the land of Goshen. Why? For every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. You see, Egypt was agricultural, but it was not pastoral. The Egyptians of this time loathed sheep, saw sheep as disgusting animals, and wanted nothing to do with them. Sheep and shepherding were abhorrent in the land of Egypt. So Joseph uses this cultural bias, this cultural intolerance to set Israel apart in Goshen. 
He emphasizes it for their own protection. Listen, we're almost done. Listen, the natural man wants to roll up his sleeves and work the land by the sweat of his brow. The natural man does not like to be led by a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside restful, quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Can you follow a shepherd? Egypt abhors a shepherd. The world will not follow the good shepherd, will you? If there was one word I could close with this morning, one word that I could speak to you as we finish, that word would be shalom, peace. Brothers and sisters, peace. Can you pause a moment longer at Beersheba? Psalm 46.10, cease striving. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And think about this as we close. Beersheba, Beersheba. What does it mean again? Well of the seven. Revelation 4, 5 says, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, which is a very clear Hebrew reference to the Holy Spirit. Can you pause to drink from the well of the seven? Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life, living water, which speaks of the spirit of God. Will you pause at Beersheba, at the well of the seven, before our reunion? Pausing and drinking from the spirit of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of Jacob. We thank you, Lord, for once again we see faithfulness in this old man who's known 22 years of despair but is still faithful to pause at Beersheba, to drink from the well, to offer sacrifice and to honor your name. And I pray, Father, that that's what we will do right now. In this time, in this season, in this pause, to be prepared, Lord, for the reunion, whether it's a reunion here as a fellowship for the work that is laid out ahead of us or the reunion when we are called up to be home. Help us in this pause to seek you, to draw near to you, to worship you, to be your people and to be at peace. Oh, Father, I pray peace over the Bridge Fellowship over our families and our friends. In the name of Jesus, this morning I pray, peace. Amen. Amen.